Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 68, I think. I think that's what it is of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I am so excited that you're here with me today. I know I say that every week. It's not planned. It's just what comes out of my mouth. Uh, but this week's show is Antonia Murphy. And believe me, you want to stay tuned to this whole episode. Um, she's fascinating, delightful. She's a local girl from my area who has uh, moved to New Zealand, my other area. So it was just a joy to talk to her about this memoir that she's written. It is a little bit different format because I recorded this for my memoir class. So the questions are a little bit different, which is actually really interesting for you guys anyway. Um, all writing advice is always applicable across the board, and she's just delightful, so you are going to enjoy. And just a quick catch up on my end, um, things have been rolling smartly along. Um, if you can hear a little feedback in the background, I swear every dog in the neighborhood is in my office chewing on their bones. There's like 72 in here. I apologize for that. Uh, but hey, real life. Um, um, yeah, things are rolling along. Everything is kind of, I'm pushing things off my plate, things that have been on my plate for a very long time. I am finally getting off my plate and this feels really good to me. And I was just reminded um, earlier today that this has happened to me before. I feel like I'm just you know, pushing through mud. And I do that for months and months and months and months at a time. Um, but the fact is I'm continuous, continuous, I can't talk, continuously producing. Uh, so at some point, all those books kind of start to take shape and show up. I think I, I think it was not last year, maybe the year before I had five book, five books come out to that year. Um, it wasn't planned. And the year before that, there were none. Uh, it's just that the way publishing cycles work, um, things like that. This year I've published only two. Next year I predict there will be more. So just by the way that everything is working, um, a very, very clever person, a clever writer would obviously orchestrate these things so that your books are released at sensible time frames. It's all scheduled out and I am I am sensible in many ways, but time management is not one of my strong suits. So I work on it very, very hard. Uh, but I am excited that things are moving out of the way and I'm seeing the glimmers of new projects in my future, which I really, really enjoy thinking about. I had, and I'm only sharing this with you, but I, I had this um, brainwave of the next collection of essays that I want to write, my next memoir. I'm pulling together right now the Patreon essays on creativity, which have been so exciting to write. I'm not going too far away from that idea. These will still be essays um, that I write for my Patreon supporters that are then collected into a book after a year. Uh, but the idea I have for next year's book excites me so much. It is actually not even something I am sure I'll be able to pull off because there is a licensing right that I would need to get around. Um, I know I, I'm, I can only really be vague about this, but uh, as soon as I am able to talk about this, if this works, if it gets off the ground, which I really hope it does, um, you will also be the first to know because I think you will 
recognize the parties involved and it's just going to be a really really fun way for me to continue writing essays about living the creative life so to that point, uh, I because we're already on the topic, I want to thank new patrons. Um, I have new patrons, Melanie Levy and Tammy Brightweiser. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for supporting me. Uh, if anybody wants to support me on Patreon, um, you get those essays. You get all the back essays. It's a full book right now. You can grab for free. Anybody who is a patron, no matter what books I put out um, of, of those essays, you always get a copy of it at the end as well as while I'm writing. And if you pledge at the $3 an essay level, which is the most popular level, you get texts from me a couple times a week. You can respond back. I respond back to you. It's super fun. And also your patronage at any level, even if it's just a quarter an episode, a dollar a month, um, it gets you the satisfaction that you are truly a patron of the arts in the old fashioned way. And that is so awesome. And I appreciate you and thank you mightily and heartily. What other news do I have? Oh, I kind of have a little bit of really fun news. In May, uh, May 5th and 6th that weekend, I'm going to be in Chicago at the Selmore Books show. Um, I think it's official. I think we could talk about it. I believe that this is true. Um, but the Selmore Books guys, uh, Jim Kukrell and Brian Cohen, uh, are putting on this what is shaping up to be a fantastic conference um, in Chicago. Uh, they're they're doing this with Zach Bohannon and my boy Jay Thorne. So um, it's going to be the first time that my other podcast, The Pedal to the Metal, which I co-host with Jay Thorne. And if you like things that are funny and awesome and about writing, you should go start at the beginning with that podcast because we have fun and it's a very short format podcast. Um, but basically the premise behind The Pedal to the Metal is moving from the day job to the dream job and uh, we have both now progressed to the dream job I've been doing this for um, um, near no I guess it's about a year and a half a little bit more than that and Jay has been full-time for about four or five months so we talk about doing this job and um, and I love that guy and we've never met in person so our first meeting will be in Chicago at the Summer Books um, conference so that's going to be really fun, and we're going to um, record a live episode of the Pedal to the Metal there. So um, you should come. You should really, really come. The names that are going to be speaking that I am hearing are going to be there. I will not reveal them because I don't know if I'm allowed to, but they're good names. They're big names. These are people who are moving in the industry who know what is going on uh, in traditional and indie worlds. So um, please come to Chicago. That's going to be fun. Uh, anything else? Now I've just been teaching like crazy and um, excited about new ideas. And this Sunday, I must say, is the Night of Writing Dangerously, which is the gala for uh, National Novel Writing Month. It uh, raises funds for the Young Writers Program and basically it's in the Julia Cameron Ballroom in San Francisco. You have to raise a certain amount of money to go. It's all a donation for the Young Writers Program. And um, it's this it's like the prom of our people you guys. In the middle of the room in the middle of the, um, the, the, the ballroom there is a candy fountain basically just covered with all the kinds of candy you could want there's coffee everywhere you look there are uh, there are there's electricity beneath every table so you can plug your computer in there's an open bar 
which has been uh, detrimental to my uh, word count a couple of years, but hopefully it won't be this year. And it's just a fantastic group of people who get very dressed up in our noir gear and go to this incredible night. So um, I'm actually speaking at it with my friend Shannon Monroe, and that's going to be really fun. So if you hear this before Sunday and you are at the Night of Writing Dangerously, come hear us talk. And it's I will I will tell you how it went, um, how it goes next week however i already know it's going to be fabulous because it really is one of my favorite nights of all it's this ball really where a bunch of nerds all of us nerds go there and just geek out and write a lot of words fueled by caffeine sugar and perhaps alcohol uh it's pretty phenomenal there's a dinner too but like who cares nobody notices the dinner after all that awesome stuff there's swag bags so um i'm very grateful to get to go and so that'll be fun and i have rambled long enough please enjoy the interview with antonia i know that i really enjoyed talking to her and um i have loved her first memoir i can't wait to see her next meantime i wish you all very happy writing and get some good words on the page talk soon Hey, you're a writer. Did you know that I send out a free weekly email of writing encouragement? Go sign up for it at rachelherron.com slash write. And you'll also get my Stop Stalling and Write PDF with helpful tips you can use today to get some of your own writing done. Okay, now on to the interview. All right, well, you guys, I could not be more pleased to be here today with Antonia Murphy. Hi, Antonia. Hi. Hey there. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction. Antonia Murphy is the author of Dirty Chick, Adventures of an Unlikely Farmer from Gotham Penguin, and founder and director of The Batch, an ethical escort agency in Congre, New Zealand. Uh, San Francisco native, she now lives on a small New Zealand farm with her partner Patrice and their combined brood of six kids. Welcome to the show. This is doing, of course, this is doing dual duty on my podcast and also for my memoir class at Stanford. Um, And I reached out to you last week when I was in the airport going somewhere to a conference and I was in the middle of your book and I was just obsessed. I had to have you on the show. I can't remember the last time a memoir has captivated me so quickly and has made me laugh so hard. And oh, how great. I can't remember if I told you, but like, if you say the word pastoral memoir to me, I am just in, I am all about it. And for listeners who might not know what that is, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's life on a farm. It's, it's talking about, you know, uprooting and going to live somewhere else and dying some chickens and some cows. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got to New Zealand and where you ended up now? Uh, well, I got to New Zealand on a sailboat. Um, I love (laughs) I was, uh, I, we were basically fleeing the Bush regime in 2008. Um, it's a little bit funny to look back now and think that, um, I was unhappy with the political climate in the States in 2008. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, but that's why, uh, I left the United States. I actually left in 2005 with my then husband, Peter, Mm -hmm. and, uh, we sailed around, uh, Central America and, uh, then took off and sailed across to New Zealand and arrived in 08. And uh, made a pretty great life here. It's a uh, it's a pretty nice lifestyle. That's fantastic. How did you get inter- interested in memoir? Was this something that was on your radar, or something to do? No, I started. I rediscovered how much I enjoyed writing while on that sailing trip. I had loved it as a young girl and came very close to getting published 
uh, with a book I wrote when I was 15. And it created this kind of hothouse of expectations. Uh. um, So that when that book was not published, I sort of shoved that dream down and didn't go back to it for many years. But you were 15. Yeah, but it it, it seemed like it was, I, I got this big time literary agent in London oh, and it wow. seemed like it was going to happen. And when it didn't, it felt like a giant failure. Um, so, so I, I sort of shoved writing to the side for a number, number of years. And then while we were sailing, I started blogging about ridiculous things that happened on board. And I loved, um, writing about uh, the sort of imperfect reality of sailing, even though people thought, thought, think that it's this tropical fantasy, you're often dealing with things like plumbing problems and the smell of your own poop and um, trying to find a hardware store in Mexico in 100 degree heat when you don't speak Spanish. And um, I started making people laugh with that stuff. And I started hearing from people about how much they enjoyed my writing. And uh, I started enjoying it again. And so that's when I started, uh, I rediscovered writing and started doing it seriously. And that was in 05, 06. And I didn't sell the memoir until 2013. So there's a number of years back into it before it actually started making some money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I I find asking questions about humor particularly irritating. So so bear with me. Um, Because you are so damn funny. Like you are on fathomably funny is that just something that comes out of you or is that something that you actually craft to go back and and add in or up the ante of humor both I think I've always had a very black sense of humor um it sort of runs on my mother's side of the family but also um when I write something that's intended to be humorous, um, after I create the first draft, in the process of editing, I actually read it out loud to myself. Mm. And um, it's in hearing it and hearing the rhythm of it and how the jokes fall that I can tell if it's funny or if it's just strained or trying too hard. And uh, that, that's, that's really helped me. And I think it also helped the success of the audio book because I think the book reads out loud really well as a result. Did you read it out loud or did they hire a narrator? They wanted to hire a narrator, but I pushed really hard and I got to read it out loud. Awesome. What was that experience like? I've never done that. It was so cool. <laughs> I had lived in New York for a number of years in college and then afterwards as a struggling young person. Um, and I always felt like I was sort of outside of the big, glamorous dream of New York looking in. And to, to fly into New York to actually read my own book in a professional studio at Audible. And put on I the headphones like and part of it all happening. It was so exciting. And there's such an amazing team there. It was lots of fun. That's super cool. Now, when you were putting together the memoir, at what point did you know, this is going to be a memoir that I'm going to attempt to sell? At one point, did I know what, sorry? Uh, that, that this was going to be a memoir that you were going to try to sell as a book. Well, it's funny, because, you know, I told you that I rediscovered writing in 05. And and started writing seriously and cranked out a young adult novel and a travel memoir about New Zealand, neither of which sold. Wow. Um, I got my literary agent on the strength of the New Zealand memoir. Mm -hmm. But then when it came time to write what became Dirty Chick, it was actually an idea I had in the shower. 
And I just jotted off this idea to my literary agent that morning saying, you know, isn't it hilarious that people think artisan farming is this is this uh, pastoral fantasy when the reality involves uh, maggots and animal shit and <laughs> all this hard work and gross things coming out of goats. And she said, that's hilarious. Let's put that together in proposal. So we actually sold the memoir on the basis uh, with the proposal. I didn't write it till I knew I had uh, a contract. Oh, awesome. That's really interesting. So um, speaking of things coming out of goats, I can't remember if it was a goat or a sheep that something was coming out of in the very first page, I believe. And it was incredibly gross and incredibly intense. And that was the moment in which I just signed up for everything you've ever done. Like I was your newest, biggest fan. There's there's a particular person who wants to read about what comes out of a goat. And I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah. Well, she gave birth to these cute little babies and then she proceeded to eat her own placenta. Like it was so dis- so special and pure totally disgusting at the same time which which is the foundation of what makes it funny I think. exactly exactly so when you were writing the memoir how and this is particularly i'm asking this for my memoir class um how did you go about crafting the arc or did you is it just something that you is it something that you planned ahead of time or no, just not wrote towards okay so it's more I- sold the proposal. I, initially, I was going to call it how your artisan farm can gross you out and kill you. And I envisioned it more as a series of vignettes, funny vignettes, like one about goats, one about mm. vegetable farming, one about um, baby cows. Um, but then and this this was um, something I discovered in the process of selling my first book is that it's my understanding that usually nonfiction is sold on the proposal. Mm hmm. And the editors, the acquiring editors, really like to be a, be a part of the creation of the book. And it's, it's fantastic if you can open your mind to that because these are really smart people who have devoted their lives to literature. And by and large, they're being extremely underpaid to do it. And so they have really great ideas, and um, if you're lucky. And my editor in Australia uh, at text, Michael Hayward, he got on the phone with me and he said, look, I see this as much more than just a book of vignettes. You, have you read A Year in Provence? Mm-hmm. Because they were able to take um, a series of funny things that happened to them while renovating their house in France and turn it into an, uh, a narrative that drew the reader along into this experience. And that's what I think you should do. And and so that's when we decided to take it more um in the direction of, of, of a whole narrative arc. I think it ends up spanning about a year, yeah, in our first year in the countryside. That's interesting you say that because I hadn't thought about Peter Mayle and those books for a really long time. And A Year in Provence actually came up while I was reading it. It just it, it does have kind of that echo and that beautiful way of drawing us through time, but still keeping us really, really grounded in the in the really disgusting moment. <laughs> it's not, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying disgusting. The book is not disgusting. It is just hilarious. It's just hilarious and very, very true. Um, how do you handle truthfulness in memoir and the people around you? I know this is the perennial question, but how do you personally handle it? Well, in, in, in this case, it was in particularly interesting, and it actually created a, a crisis sort of at the end of the, um, of the writing process. Um, what happened was when I sold the book, you know, the way that I had started to write uh, my humor, short stories and blog posts, is I would take um, what 
could be a seemingly innocuous situation and I would exaggerate it to the point of absurdity to make something funny. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the, you know, when you, when you make a proposal, you, you have a couple of sample chapters in there. And one of the sample chapters that I sold it with involved um, how cute baby lambs are. And in, in, in my, um, in the sample chapter, I sort of, I took it to the, to the extreme. So I implied that uh, the baby lambs had actually become a drug and that I was actually uh, possibly performing sex acts with these baby lambs. And, and it was so absurd. It was obviously false. Right. Uh, and, and it was funny. And, and the editors loved it. And so um, at the beginning of the writing preparation, does everything need to be completely factually correct? Or can you exaggerate for humorous effect? And the Australians were pushing for no, 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 exaggerate. It's tons of fun. No idiot is actually going to think that she is, um, you know, performing sex acts on a lamb. And the Americans were more cautious. And, um, and in the end, my American editor said, fine, you know, look, bottom line, just go in the direction that you think is funny. So I wrote the book. Then when I turned in the draft... Um, there were a few wildly exaggerated vignettes in it and including at the end, there was this like big showdown with the farmer and two of the goats and somebody jumped over his four wheeler or something and it was made up. And I can't remember at what point in an exchange I alluded to the fact that that was made up. I said like, of course that's exaggerated. And my editor, my American editor said, what? It has to be factually correct or we're in big trouble. She said, you need to give me a table of exactly which items in this memoir are at all exaggerated or not true to life. And I was like, whoa, whoa. And uh, honestly, I almost lost the U.S. contract over it because I felt really blindsided by that. And I thought um, uh, I, had, I, I was misled in the beginning about what I, what I could and couldn't do. And uh, my agency had to get on the phone and like sort of talk me down off the ledge because I went into this artistic temper tantrum of fine, I'll just publish in Australia then. The hell with the Americans. <laughs> and my literary agent was like, easy now. That's a much bigger contract than the Australian contract. Let's see if we can work with them. And so I ended up going back and really rewriting those sections so that it was all within the realm of what could legally be construed as nonfiction in the United States. And then at the very end, I was basically deposed by an, uh, a lawyer from Penguin over Holy Skype. Holy crap. Who, who, who went through different points that they still thought might not be factually correct to ensure that they were. And uh, it was a real wake-up call. And I guess what, what, what I took away from it is that there were a couple of memoirs in the not-too-distant past. Uh, is it James Frey, A Million Little yeah, Pieces? Mm -hmm. And then one about the cups of tea in Nepal. Three, yeah, three cups of tea. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those, for some reason, Frey, I can see more so than the cups of tea, but they resulted in lawsuits about, um, about, about factual errors. And all, I guess the three cups of tea, what happened is that people were donating people that ended up to not exist or had been misrepresented. And so there were lawsuits. And so apparently the American publishing industry was really. Um, running scared about anything that could create a lawsuit. Um, so, so long, that a very long answer to your question. That's how I ended up dealing with truthfulness, and it was a real wake up call because I didn't I didn't see why a movie 
was allowed to begin with based on a true story right. and a book was not. But it's a it's a much harder line in nonfiction, certainly out of the United States. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it being different country to country, oh, yeah. but it definitely is. And who's the most libelous nation on earth? It's the United yeah. States, of course. Of course, they're running scared. But um, I want to reassure my students: don't worry about this yet. This will ha- worry about this later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Um... You know, nobody ever threatened to take away the contract from me. It was I who went into yeah. this fit of artistic peak. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, I think I could have been a little bit more grown up about it. But it's all part of the learning process, you know. And the, and the delicious thing about humor is when it is exaggerated. I mean, think about David Sedaris. Think about um, any of the any of the greats who do exaggerate to that perfect effect. And we buy into it and we love it and we want more of it. Well, so. that, uh, uh, Michael at text brought up Mark Twain, who, you know, things sure. like, yeah, uh, is it a Connecticut a Yankee in King Arthur's court? I think he may have presented that as these are things that really happened to me, dear reader. Yep. Yep. Oh, wow. I'm really glad that you shared that. Um, what is your writing process like? What is your daily writing process like? Ass in chair. I, uh, I had those words uh, printed out above my desk. And uh, basically, there's hard days and there's easy days, but I force myself to treat it like a job. And I am in that chair uh, by 930. And I don't get out of that chair until I've sat there for a good three hours or I have a good chunk of writing done. Um, sometimes it takes me half an hour to get my head focused. Sometimes... Uh, I sit there that whole time and I don't get anything worthwhile completed, but I find that just the process of being there, the gears are turning in my head. Mm. And even if what I've written that day is garbage, my head will keep turning it over so that the following day when I get back to that writing chair, I have a much more productive day. And do you write write there where you're sitting? Are you at home when you write or do you go out? No, totally at home. I just need... uh, I have written in a library, but I need quiet, so I will go with a pair of those giant plastic earmuffs that people use to mow their lawns, and I sit there like a crazy person um, writing with my earmuffs on. That's awesome. I also love when uh, I'm one of those writers that makes faces in public when I'm writing. You know, when when I'm thinking about things, I'm sure I'm doing that with my earmuffs on, and it, it amuses well, me I'm to pick up. I'm to myself because I'm reading out loud to myself, so that's even more sexy. <laughs> Um, speaking of sexy, can you please tell us about the brothel? Because wait, let me, let me back this up. I, you know, I'm reading your book. I go to your website and I see the word brothel and I think, well, that must mean something different. I don't understand. And I clicked on it and it, it, it does indeed. You are a madam now. And, um, I have received your assurance that you're writing about it. Thank God. Cause I can't wait to read this. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Absolutely. Um, well, Not to disillusion your students, um, but writing except in cases doesn't pay all the bills. Um, So, you know, I I was really excited to get the deal that I got from Gotham Penguin. And uh, that payment, uh, after your literary agent takes their cut and the government takes their cut, and it is spaced out over about a year and a half because you get a third when you sign, a third when you turn in the manuscript, and a third when the book is published, at least in my case, that was the deal. And I understand that's quite common. Um, in the end of the day, it's lovely pocket money. 
right? So I needed to, uh, I needed a, a job. Basically, uh, I didn't want a job. I wanted to start a business. And since we had arrived in New Zealand, I was really intrigued that uh, sex work was completely decriminalized here. So um, in some countries, for example, in Australia and Europe, it is legalized, which means that it is not a crime, but it is heavily regulated by the government. Here it is treated like work like any other work. So they basically leave you alone to get on with it. Um, so in researching this, uh, the first thing I did was nerd out and, uh, try to learn as much as I could about it and make contacts with other people in the industry. And I reached out to the woman who runs the, the most famous, uh, escort agency in New Zealand called Funhouse in Wellington. And I said, can this be done in a way that is supportive to women and, uh, protects their emotional and, uh, human emotional well-being and human rights. And she said, absolutely. She said, it's not the way to make the most money, but if you want to do it that way, I'm the only person in this country who can teach you how to do it. So I went down and interned with her for two weeks. Yeah. And, uh, it was incredible. Um, far from what I had thought about sex work and what I think most people who don't have direct experience with it think, um, these women were not addicted to drugs. They were not exploited. They were not downtrodden in any way. If anything, it reminded me of when I was on the crew team at Columbia. It was like a women's sports team of girls who were like, hell yeah, let's go. You know, I love uh, that. They, they were gorgeous young women who came in, they worked for an hour, made 200 bucks and went back to graduate school or to their artistic careers or whatever it is they were doing in their life. Um, and in many cases, they really enjoyed the sex and they said, you know, I don't need a boyfriend. I'm putting away money for travel, for whatever it is they were doing. And it was, it was just really awesome. And I searched my heart as I still continue to do for, am I missing something? Is there something secretly sexist and exploitative that I am not getting here? And I just cannot find it. And, um, the bottom line is that. In our culture today, many young people, certainly in the in the West wealthy Western countries, their sex lives are already quite casual on Tinder hookups with people they hardly know. Sure. Except the girls are having sex for free uh, with guys who they don't know and who often aren't very good in bed. And so the women who come and work for me, they end up saying things like, "I can't believe I was doing this on Tinder for free. Obviously, I should be getting paid for it." So that's what we do. And uh, I don't call it a brothel any longer. I call it a feminist escort agency. So like the that. difference is that uh, in a brothel, um, uh, generally speaking, the ladies are all like in their underwear in a room and a guy goes in and says, you, I'll take you, which is fundamentally kind of gross. Mm -hmm. um, our escort agency, there are photos of the ladies' um, bodies basically online with no faces and no distinguishing marks. Uh, the men ring us up. They need to be polite and respectful. Um, they make an arrangement with a lady. They have to follow a series of instructions. Um, we tell them where to go. There's a beautiful apartment where um, a lady greets them in um, a elegant dress, um, offers him a drink. The whole thing is a much more human experience, much more mm -hmm. like a date with a girlfriend. And look, I have uh, women working for me who um, most of them are single mothers. Um, some of them are paying down student debt. Um, one most recently um, quit her nursing job because she was earning so little and she's doing so much better at the batch. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's really fascinating to me. I actually, I, I over the past of this, 
over the course of this past year, I've become increasingly radicalized. Um, I'm not strapping bombs to myself or anything, but I increasingly feel like, at least in 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 the situation where these women are in a in a in a wealthy Western democracy where we're not dealing with issues of illegal immigration or drug addiction or certainly human trafficking, what we're dealing with is young women who are are quite capable of making their own choices. This is an issue of right to work. This is a human rights issue of right to work and women having the right to monetize their own sexual services. There's absolutely no reason why we should be allowed to give away sex, but we're not allowed to charge for it. I the love only that. Reason, frankly, is that I think there is a secret fear in the patriarchy that if the women figure out they can charge for it, they'll all start charging for it. I would like you to radicalize the world that way. And I cannot wait to read this book. I do have one specific question just geographically because I'm familiar with the area. Is it is it Auckland and North or is this is the batch out in Fangare or is it because I know it's a little bit less populated out where you are and I wonder how that works. Fangare is two hours north of Auckland. Uh, we're the only professional agency north of Auckland. Okay. So um, we get uh, guys driving to see us for an hour or more. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, it's never going to be huge, as huge as it could be in Auckland or Wellington. Um, but having said that, in some ways we're making more of an impact because the economy here is such that unless you um, have, have a, really, uh, a, a really valued qualification, like you're a surgeon or a lawyer, the jobs that are available certainly to young women are basically minimum wage. And so we're what we offer, they're able to make 10, 11 times that and more. Um, so it, act, it really changes their lives. I mean, and, 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 and many of them, they are just socking that money away and putting it a safe, in a safe. And they are going to use it to invest, to buy property. It's, it's changing That's fantastic. Lives. That's fantastic. I absolutely love it. And I really mean it when I, I say I cannot wait to read this book. It's going to be... Whenever it comes out, it's going to be amazing. Um, so Thank I, you. Interesting you say that. I have yet to get a negative response from a woman about this. Um, wow. Most women, I mean, sometimes people are unsure when they first hear about it. They're like, ooh, doesn't that objectify women? Isn't that? But then when I explain to them, every woman I've spoken to, their response is, hell yes. Hell it may not be yes. everyone. Women should have the choice. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm from the Bay Area where we had the first, you know, uh, uh, unionized um, the Lussie Lady in San Francisco. I don't know if you remember that, but well, I'm familiar with Margot St. James and the what is it? Chuck out your old tired ethics, the Coyote Group. Yeah, um, yeah. What is what is Jesse the, Lane? The Lusty Lady was a um, it was a strip joint that was unionized. I think it was the first oh. and maybe the only, and now it's out. Of, and it was a co-op. It was women owned, mm-hmm. um, so it was really pivotal in um, changes in set work, sex work. But we're still the puritanical United States, and we're still remaining in that. We are not New Zealand, and um, and I have to say that I have, I you know, I, I mentioned to you that I have dual citizenship, and we are always thinking about fleeing, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> I can't believe that we haven't done it yet, but my my wife and I are always kind of it's always on the. On the front burner, we've got family stuff that keeps us here. But but other than yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I miss the United States. It's hard yeah. to immigrate. Yeah, and, and every time I come back, I'm homesick, for sure. Yeah. Um, but the longer I'm away, the more some things like healthcare and gun control 
and Puritanism seem just insane. Yeah. I seem insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what an absolute treat it has been to talk to you. Um, one more thing I would like to ask you, if you were going to tell a brand new memoir writer just starting, one piece of advice that you wish you had been given, do you have anything like that to share? That I wish I had been given at the start. Hmm. I think it's important to remember that even though it's, you know, this, this goes back to the issue of, of truth. And even though you may be telling facts, you are telling select facts. And in telling those select facts, you are creating a character, which is you in the book. It's not the same as you in real life. And so once the memoir is out there, people will contact you and, and, and often it's really lovely and the book has meant a lot to them, um, but they often feel like they know you because you have shared yourself in the book and that can lead people to say things that seem weirdly intimate um, or, or you may, they may ask you really personal questions and then, and then you, you, you think about it and you reply and they never get back to you and, and it can hurt your feelings mm. actually. You know, and when and when you're answering questions about your personal life and your family on the radio or in media, it can feel weirdly raw and exposed. And I think it's just important to treat it like a job. And remember, you're answering questions about this character that you created in a book. I love that. Uh, not about your innermost self. That makes perfect sense. And it is all about what we choose to present and what we choose to hold back. Mm -hmm. And we get to make those choices. I believe that you are a woman all about choice. So, well, you know, I'm from the freaky San Francisco Bay Area. <laughs> no, you are. <laughs> thank you so much yeah. for your time. I can't thank you more. Um, please go back to enjoying your day and doing awesome <laughs> things. Thanks, right, Antonia. Well, okay. I'd love to hear how it goes with your class. I will. I will let you know. Thank you. Okay, thank Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.